Good morning. It's my joy to bring God's Word to you today. Turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. You can find that at the bottom of page 1031 in the Pew Bible. We have here two visions given to the Apostle John. Two glimpses of glory. Two scenes of God's triumphant saints in heaven. And we want to turn our eyes to these glorious scenes now. So follow along as I read Revelation 7. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Sibion, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray together. O Father in heaven, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the governor of every single molecule and event of history, the sustainer of every single breath, the giver of the sun and the rains, and the giver of your son and the spirit, Lord, we come to you the great and gracious, majestic and merciful God. Pray that you will enable common things to be renewed in our souls again. Common not because they are ordinary, but common because we've heard them so often. Father, will you again allow them to be expanded in our own minds and consciences. May they be the sweet delicacies that they were at one time when we found ourselves unworthy and lost and wandering. 
when we found ourselves exposed to your condemnation and wrath so justly, when we could see no hope on any horizon at any place, when we had not one bit of strength to raise a finger to please you. O Lord, may these truths, as they were so precious then, may they become precious again to us. Fill us with the hope of heaven. Thank you for your word, and we pray for your spirit to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Suffering is an inevitable part of this world. Poverty, war, famine, death, many other tragedies mark life in this world. If you've lived long enough, you've come face to face with sorrow and suffering. Just this past week, I spoke with saints battling physical ailments, saints struggling with besetting sins, saints suffering from strained relationships every day. We're reminded of the curse that ravages this world and all who dwell on it. And meanwhile, we Christians face our own challenges. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world face persecution, imprisonment, even martyrdom. And we ourselves face increasing marginalization and ridicule. We're told that we're on the wrong side of history. To get with the times. To believe what modern people believe. To love and celebrate what God forbids and condemns. Christian churches, in the eyes of many, are a waste of space, taking up taxable property and accomplishing little social good with their heavenly message. And yet, for all the hardships we face in this world, and they are real, there is a more fundamental reality that each of us must face. And this reality hits us straight in the face at the end of chapter 6, which ends with this question. Who is able to stand on the day of God's wrath? You see, it's not only our sufferings that bring trials and tribulations, it's our own sins. We have enlisted in the greatest mutiny conceivable by rebelling against our Creator and attempting to rule ourselves. But there is a day coming when our lives and this world will end. The great day of God's wrath will come, and He will execute justice and judge sin. And no one will be able to stand before Him in his own merits. We will all fall short of his glory and can expect no other outcome but his righteous judgment. But is there any hope for us then? Is there any hope to escape the day of God's wrath? Is there any hope for a new world, a better world, a perfect world, a world without sin and suffering and sorrow? Will we be ruined forever? Does God intend to dwell again with us? Well, God's Word speaks a clear word of hope to us this morning. In this wonderful passage, we find an answer to our sins and the sorrows of this world. We see a vision of God sealing His people to shelter them from the coming judgment so they can serve Him and be satisfied in Him forever. We see a vision of God and the Lamb receiving praise because they've saved the people from the great tribulation to live in a new creation that will last forever. God will give His church eternal joy in His presence. In the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. And on that last day, the church will be presented faultless before God by the obedience, suffering, and triumph of Christ. All sin purged and its wretched effects forever banished. And everything will be to the praise of His glorious grace. So if I could state the main idea that the Lord wants us to believe from this passage, in the words of one faithful Christian, it is this. God gets all of His own all the way home. God gets all of his own, 
all the way home. And this morning, I want us to see four hope-giving realities. Protection by the seal, verses 1 through 8. Praise for salvation, verses 9 through 12. Perseverance through suffering, verses 13 through 14. And presence with the shepherd, verses 15 through 17. Let's consider first protection by the seal. Look at verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seals, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin, were sealed. So this vision begins with four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. And the four here represents wholeness. The four corners don't refer to the earth being flat, of course, but refer to the whole thing. In Matthew 24, verse 31, Jesus speaks of God gathering his people at the end. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So the picture is that God saves all of his people from across the whole earth. And as these four angels stand ready to bring the judgment described in these seals that have been broken, that's chapter 6, in verse 2 we're introduced to another angel, one ascending from the east. And he's, he's carrying the seal of the living God. And this seal, it serves as a, a distinguishing or authenticating mark on God's people, that they belong to God. Now, to understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand that this scene of God sealing his servants before judgment is a clear reference to Ezekiel chapter 9. And that's a sobering passage where God calls an executioner to pass through Jerusalem and to strike down all who have given themselves to idols. But before the executioners to go out and strike down all the idolaters, God's faithful, those who hate the evil that's going on there, they're to be sealed so that they will escape the judgment. Listen to this again from Ezekiel 9. God says to the executioner, Pass throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the detestable practices committed in it. He spoke to the others in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and start killing. Do not show pity or spare them. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, as well as the children and older women. But do not come near anyone who has the mark. So God will bring judgment on idolaters, but he will seal and save those who cling to him by faith. They will not be hurt in the judgment. And this is what John is drawing upon as he sees this vision laid before him. Can you think of another place in the Old Testament where people were delivered from judgment because of a mark? The Passover, right? 
where the mark of the blood on the door of the Israelites, put there by faith, hiding by faith under the blood of the Lamb, that if they would do that, the death angel would pass over them, and then they would be exodus out to the promised land. Why, why is this seal given? The sealed ones are protected by God. Verse 3, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So these angels are not allowed to carry out the judgment until God's servants are sealed. What an encouraging truth. Certainly there is great judgment coming, but hear this. God knows who his people are. God will seal his people so that they will not be swept away in the judgment, but they will be kept until the last day. What is the seal? Revelation 14, verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So they will be sealed on their foreheads with the name of the Father and the Son. And this correlates to the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Do you see this Trinitarian salvation? The Spirit seals the name of the Father and the Son upon believers. How long are we sealed that way? Ephesians 4, verse 30, you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. That day when Jesus returns. The seal is a defining stamp signifying ownership and allegiance, and it's permanent. When is the seal given? Well, here it's given before the final judgment. But from the whole Bible, we see that it occurs at the moment of salvation for every believer in history. From the time of the resurrection of Jesus to the time of the return of Jesus. It occurs at the moment of conversion. And we saw that in Ephesians 1 verse 13. And we also see it in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22. He has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. So this sealing is not just happening at the end of all things. But God is sealing his people all throughout history. And is keeping them from the moment of their conversion unto their death, through their death, until this final scene will see in a moment when they are with him forevermore. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, when you were born again, when you believed the gospel, God sealed you. God said of you, this one is mine. Where is the seal placed? Verse 3, on their foreheads. This is metaphorical. The seal... It's not something you can see, but it is a reality. It is on a place that is public and visible. And though not a visible mark, it can be seen in lips and lives, in what people do and don't do, what they say and don't say, what they treasure and don't treasure. It's evident who you belong to. And this is contrasted in Revelation with another mark, the mark of the beast. The seal of the beast mentioned seven times in the book. And that mark is given to those who make peace with the beast, the satanic representative on the earth who is stealing allegiance from the Lamb. They show their allegiance to him. Chapters 13 and 17, guess where that mark is? It's on their foreheads. And this is important to understand because these marks may be symbolic, but what they represent is very real. 
It's impossible to hide who you belong to. It's clear who you love. It's clear what your treasure is. And as the pressure intensifies, it becomes clearer and clearer. Now, there are days when believers struggle and sin. This is, of course, true. But they don't find home in their sin anymore. It grieves them, breaks their heart, and they confess it and repent and struggle to do that all the way home. So are you marked by love for Jesus, by faith in Christ? Is that seal upon you? Is the name of the Father and the Son upon you? Or is there a different mark, one that shows your love for the world and this fleeting world system? So who are the 144,000? Jehovah's Witnesses say there's a unique set of 144,000 who will be in heaven while everyone else is on earth. And that's a severe error and self-righteous. There are two main views that I think fit the Bible's teaching as a whole. The first view says that this represents the symbolic number of believing Israelites who will be saved before Christ returns. Now, this view fits with Romans 11 that there will be a remnant of ethnic Israel that trusts in their Messiah. But I take this to refer to all Christians. And here are four reasons, four S's. Uh, first is that this is symbolic language. 144,000 is a symbolic number. This is true throughout the book of Revelation. 12 is symbolic. So you have 12 tribes times 12 apostles, representing all of God's people, times 1,000, which is a number used for grand completeness. Now, this may seem strange, but this is how apocalyptic literature works. All of God's people are indeed sealed. That's a theological reality. And it seems most likely those are who these 144,000 are. Second consideration is Satan. In chapter 13, Satan seals all of his followers with the mark of the beast. And so it seems consistent that God would seal all of his followers, not just an ethnic minority. Third reason would be servants. The sealed ones are called the servants of God. That phrase is used six times in Revelation, and it always refers to all of God's redeemed, never to an ethnic remnant. And the fourth reason would be that there are select tribes listed. It's interesting that not all the tribes are mentioned, and this arrangement is unique in all the Bible. The list begins with Judah. Why? Because Judah, or Jesus, is descended from Judah. He's presented as the firstborn. Revelation 1.5 says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And then there's a tribe that's missing. Did you catch it? It's Dan. You're like, what happened to Dan? I think it's to point out that only those who are faithful to God will join the redeemed in glory. In Judges 18 verse 30, the tribe of Dan sinned greatly against God. They set up a center for idol worship that lasted some 300 years. And so Dan is known and marked by their idolatry. And remember, the sealing is rooted in Ezekiel 9, where God sealed the faithful to ensure that they weren't slain as the idolatrous were. So Dan is excluded as a sober warning. That if you follow the beast in his world system, you will not be among the redeemed. But for those who believe in Jesus, who have repented of their sins, who have sworn their allegiance to Him, there is great comfort and assurance for us here. Our hope is firm. God sees us, He seals us, 
and He will keep us. He does that in time and in history. And then John gets to see what it looks like in eternity, in heaven. And that takes us to the next vision and our next hope-giving reality. Praise for salvation. Look at verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so the scene shifts from God, sealing His people on earth to the celebration of all of God's redeemed, now in heaven. And we should see these as complementary visions, both depicting the same group. In the first vision, the number is definite because God knows exactly who the redeemed are. And here, the number is indefinite, uncountable from John's perspective. In verse 4, he hears the number of the seal. It's 144,000. But in verse 9, he sees a great multitude that no one could number. Now, whichever view you take out of the 144,000, verse 9 is, is clear. The scope of God's kingdom is expanding far beyond Israel to every people group on the earth. And this echoes the blessing of Abraham, right? That he would have descendants as numerous as the stars. God took him outside and said, look at the sky. Count the stars if you are able to count them. And then he said to them, your offspring will be that numerous. Next time you're outside on a clear night, try counting the stars. You can't do it. And notice that the multitude is not only uncountable, it's diverse. It's a great multitude from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. Have you ever asked why God designed it this way? He could have just redeemed one people group. In fact, He could have simply created one solitary group. But diversity is part of His eternal design. And I want to give you three reasons why. The first reason is that it elicits a more powerful praise. The beauty and power of praise that will come to the Lord from the diversity of the nations are greater than the beauty and power that would come to Him if the chorus of the redeemed were culturally uniform. Consider the analogy of, of a choir. More depth of beauty is felt from a choir that sings in parts than from a choir that sings only in unison. Unity in diversity is more beautiful and more powerful than unity in uniformity. And this carries over to the untold differences that exist between the peoples of the world. So when their diversity unites in worship to Christ, the power of their praise will echo the greatness of His beauty far more than if the redeemed were from only a few different nations. Second reason would be a more appealing admiration. The greatness and worth of an object increase in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. If a work of art is regarded as great among a small and like-minded group of people, but not by anyone else, the art is probably not truly great. Its qualities do not appeal to the deep universals in our hearts, but only to provincial biases. But if a work of art continues to win more and more admirers, not only across cultures, but across decades and centuries, 
then its true greatness is revealed. And so when the psalmist says, praise the Lord, all nations, extol them, all peoples, he's saying there's something about Christ that is so universally praiseworthy and so profoundly beautiful and so deeply satisfying that Christ will find passionate admirers in every people group in the world. The diversity of admirers testifies to his incomparable glory. And the third reason is a more fascinated following. The strength and wisdom and love of a leader is displayed by the diversity of people he inspires to follow him with joy. If you can lead only a small, uniform group of people, your leadership qualities are not as great as they would be if you could win a following from a large group of very diverse people. So the more diverse the people who forsake their gods to follow the true God and confess Jesus as Lord, the more visible is Christ's superiority over all of his competitors. Now what does this great multitude do? They cry out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This speaks to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God and the Lamb, saving together, sitting together, ruling together. And why this emphasis on Jesus as the Lamb of God? It's because God's glory is most clearly seen in the saving grace of His Son. What do the white robes stand for? For new garments that are clean. You need a clean garment to stand before God. The palm branches stand for joy. This goes back to the Feast of Booze. Leviticus 23, they would wave the palm branches and symbolize the joy that was pulsating through their life. They're filled with joy because they come out of the great tribulation. I think that means because they're in heaven. And these people are praising God for bringing them home. This is an encouragement to us now. Who are those most taken up with the worthiness of the Lamb? but those who are most conscious of our own unworthiness, of our own sins, our own weakness. We're covered by the blood of the Lamb, bought by His blood, sealed by His Spirit. How can we not rejoice and be glad at such a worthy, worthy Lamb? So brothers and sisters, live in the fresh winds of the Gospel. Live in the fresh winds of the Gospel. So that we're always reminding people that salvation is of the Lord. It's not our work. It's not what any of us have attained. It comes from being forgiven and cleansed. Let's not be known for being critical and self-righteous. Let's be known as people who are forgiving and gracious because we've been saved and sealed. But this vast multitude isn't alone. There's another company of participants who join in the worship. Look at verse 11-12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen! Wow, the angels in heaven rejoice. Luke 15, verse 10. There is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. 
Salvation is what angels long to look into, and that above all for which they praise the Lord. So this scene is overwhelming, it's breathtaking, astonishing. It makes us want, to fall, want us to fall on our knees in worship. The glory of glories in heaven will be the love of God to sinners in Jesus Christ. The frailest, most insignificant believer will one day move angels and the redeemed to praise God for His wondrous grace and mercy. We will look at one another and adore our Savior for His matchless kindness to us. And it will all be because of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of His people. Third hope-giving reality, perseverance through suffering. In verse 13, one of the elders asks John, Who are these people in white robes? And where did they come from? You ever have someone ask you a question and they know the answer? They're just trying to see if you know the answer. And that's what happens here. John replies, Sir, you know. And then the elder tells him, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What is the great tribulation? There are many views, but I think it started in the first century and it lasts the whole church age and it will be intensified in severity at the end of history. Matthew 24, another difficult passage, Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So there, there will be an intense season of distress in the future, but I don't think this great tribulation is just talking about the end of church, about the end of history, but all of church history. Because it has to relate to John's readers who are reading it. And in Revelation 1 verse 9, John calls himself your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So, so it's true of all believers, not just Christians at the end. They've come out of the great tribulation. They've suffered and they made it home. And so on the one hand, these people are sealed. The church of God is rescued from the great day of His wrath. But don't misunderstand the protection. It doesn't mean you won't suffer. These two visions go together. Yes, you're sealed and protected by God, but it doesn't mean you won't suffer in this life. It may be agonizing. Some of these believers are being put to death. Sealed doesn't mean protected from suffering. God never promised that. It doesn't mean He's not protected you. You're protected from His wrath, from His judgment. So there's a joy, but life's complex. It's mingled with grief and pain and anguish in this life. It's hard. Some of you are going through deep suffering right now. We all go through it. It may be physical, spiritual, but we have His promise, don't we? We will triumph in the end. Tribulation is anything that can thwart us spiritually. Satan uses persecution, imprisonment, martyrdom, but he also uses the world and the flesh against us. We are wrestling against tribulations of lust and temptation and sin, maybe even a discouraging spiritual dryness and apathy that can eat away at us. 
These struggles all call for a patient endurance and perseverance, and perhaps repentance as well. But count it all joy, because the most toxic situation is to not even be aware of the tribulation. Having a spirit of self-satisfaction, complacency. If we're not even feeling the tribulation, there's something wrong. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. If we're living for the Lord, tribulation will find us. How do you get out of the great tribulation? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How do you get a white garment? You get it through red blood. You get it through the blood of someone else. So, so these are just the remarkably good people. If you're not a Christian here, you might think, oh, these are church people. Moral, nice people who follow God's law. And that's how someone enters God's presence. No, there's no such thing as good people in and of themselves. There's only one good one. And that's Jesus Christ. And He washes us from our sins by His blood so that we can have white garments. And so the white garments we have are not our own. They're from Him. It's His blood that cleanses us and it's His blood that promises we'll triumph and make it home to heaven. How can we suppose that by trying our hardest we could ever become worthy of crossing the chasm between sinful earth and sinless heaven? And yet, there is an almost universal idea that humans deserve eternal life. This is the working assumption of all other religions. It is the incoherent hope of the man in the street. People think that it is somehow natural and fitting that they should go to heaven. They believe, in spite of all the evidence, that they have a right to eternal bliss. And if their joyful destiny is questioned, they are hurt or offended. Friends, the merest glimpse of heaven's glory would render any such notion absurd. We would see in an instant our unworthiness to be there, our utter inability to exist in that holy place. As one Christian said, sooner could a worm aspire to be a brain surgeon than a sinner expect to work his own passage to glory. In and of ourselves, there is no hope that we shall ever reach heaven, no matter what we do, or how energetically and persistently we strive, it will not happen. There is only one way, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only possible avenue by which we may enter heaven. Muhammad can't get you to paradise. Buddha can't get you to nirvana. But Jesus gets all of his own, all the way home. And we know how He brings us there. He redeems us through His death. He came to earth so that those who believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was punished for our sins in His own body on the tree, where He fully paid for our transgressions and satisfied God's wrath. Christ's blood unlocked heaven's gates for sinners. Heaven, says Richard Baxter, is the fruit of the blood of the Son of God, yea, the chief fruit. Don Carson, theologian and scholar, once spoke with a Jewish atheist friend 
about the significance of the cross. And the friend's last word on the subject was, I don't want to go to heaven on the back of another man's blood. How do you respond? Carson responded, well then, my dear friend, you will not go to heaven. The Lord Jesus also brings us to heaven by making us holy. He has provided for all his people a perfect righteousness. So in his sinless humanity, Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. And the white, spotless robe of his obedience is given to us when we trust in him. So not only do we have a right to heaven through his death, we are fitted for heaven by his righteousness. And so we've seen that the church experiences protection by the seal, praise for salvation, perseverance through suffering, and then finally, we will experience presence with the shepherd. Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Therefore they are before the throne of God, not because of their works, but because of Christ. And where are they? They're in heaven, before God's throne, serving him in his temple. We know from the end of Revelation that there is no temple in heaven. So this is a picture. They serve God in his presence. It's the greatest blessing of all. God with us. We will find our greatest joy in serving our God. This will be what one hymn writer called our blessed employee, our joyful job. Day and night we will adore him in his temple. Lost in wonder, love, and praise, we will enjoy him to the full. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Literally, he will, he will tabernacle over them. He'll be with us. Having protected us through our wilderness journey in this world, he will keep us safe forever with him. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Nothing can touch us. What awaits the church of the living God? All the perfection and beauty that we long for. We'll hunger no more. We'll thirst no more. No more intense heat of the sun. No more groaning or anguish or crying. That's what he's holding out to the church. Do you see how much he loves his people? Sealed in suffering, life's hard often. But there's a great future. This life isn't all there is. We will not suffer the pains of this present world in the perfect world that is to come. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Here's another striking image. We think of Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. But here we're told the Lamb is our shepherd. The lambs aren't shepherds. Lambs are sheep, but this lamb is, and he's our good shepherd, and he will lead us forever. Psalm 23 says that the good shepherd leads us beside still waters. 
That's what we long for. It's good to get away on vacation, away from the hustle and bustle of life, all the pressures. Go by the lake, the still, serene waters. Be restful, be peaceful. But then we come back to the pell-mell of life and all that is going on. But here we're told it's the Lamb who will guide us to springs of living water. Every holy desire, every good longing we have will be satisfied then. He'll fill up every empty spot in our lives. There's a lot of those, aren't there? There's a lot of emptiness and longing in this life, not in the next life. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We don't have to limit the tears. Every tear we shed because of sin, every regret we have because of sins we've committed, how I regret some of the things that I've done. Every tear we shed because someone has hurt us will be wiped away. You know, for some of you, you've been hurt so deeply that when you're alone and when your mind just goes into a relaxed mode, your mind automatically goes to that track of someone who hurt you. And you just think about it. It comes back to you again and again and again. But it's going to be removed. That hurt, that injury, those things that are branded in our souls and make us weep, they will be removed. Every tear we shed because we've suffered will be wiped away. God himself, who is our God, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Tears induced by sin and suffering will be wiped away by the one who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, whose soul was very sorrowful in Gethsemane, and who cried out on the cross. Broken bodies will be restored, broken hearts healed. All the consequences of sin will be dispelled because sin itself will be destroyed. God will right all wrongs. He will give our restless hearts their final rest in His merciful arms. And Christ, the Lamb, is at the center of it all. We will be where He is, standing before Him, serving Him, being satisfied in Him. He will be and will remain more close and more precious to us than ever before. That Christ is central in heaven is of great value for us here and now because it makes the world to come more comprehensible and attractive. That we will be with Jesus is far and away the most important truth about our future hope. If you are in Christ, do not be afraid of death. He who has conquered that last enemy is waiting for you on the other side. As soon as our souls pass into glory, we will see Jesus. He who has known and loved us from before time began will welcome us into his immediate presence. We will not feel strange or out of place, but profoundly and permanently at home. We will know that we are where we belong and everlastingly secure. Perhaps this morning, you are in an altogether different category. You believe that there is such a place as heaven, and you want to go there. But you're not a Christian, as you've never repented, turned away from your sin, and trusted on, in Jesus Christ, called upon His name to save you. You've never received Him in faith as your Lord. And yet you'd hope that somehow, some way, 
you will get into heaven. That is a commonly held hope. But can you not understand now how absurd and groundless it is? We've seen that heaven and Christ are linked together. He is central there. The essence of heaven's glory. The one who has secured heaven for sinners. The one who reveals God in heaven. If he were some peripheral figure in the life to come, then maybe we could conceive of some way to reach heaven without him. But the Lamb is at the center of the throne. He is unmistakably prominent. Can you imagine yourself explaining why God should admit you to heaven? I had no interest in your beloved son, you will say. I rejected him, made little of his death, shut my ears to his invitations, ignored his warnings. Jesus Christ meant and means nothing to me. As far as I'm concerned, your sending of your son to earth was an unnecessary, pointless waste. But in other respects, I have tried to be a decent person. For some of the time, I have done my best. And so I expect you, O oh God, to allow me into the heaven of the Christ I despised and refused. Does the idea of it not make you shudder? Can you not hear how crass and blasphemous such words sound? And yet that is, in essence, the unbeliever's plea. And it is the height of folly. Without Christ, there is no hope of heaven. And so I plead with you, come to him now. Cry to the Savior of sinners to change you, forgive you, receive you. If you ask him with all your heart, he will do it. And heaven will be yours. Christ will guide you to springs of living water. In the last day, God will wipe away every tear from your eye, and you will have perfect joy in Him forever. How do I know this? Because God gets all of His own, all the way home. So take heart, church. We're almost home. Let's pray. We give thanks to you, O gracious and loving Father, O Lamb of God, O Spirit who seals us, we thank you for saving us to be your own. We praise you that you do give us joy in the midst of suffering, that you strengthen us, that we who are saved are promised to be sustained by your grace unto glory. Thank you for our great hope. We ask that you would fill us with the radiance of joy that only you can give. Some of us think there's just no place that joy can come from. But Lord, we know it comes from you and not from ourselves. We pray that you will grant us refreshing and restful streams. Be our shepherd. Lead and guide us to our eternal home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.